Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. I would love to invite you to find a Bible and turn with me to the very front page, the book of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis means beginnings, and that's a good place to be as we begin our new season of vision casting at Hope. It's been said that a vision is simply a picture of tomorrow that produces passion today. And we've been asking God to give hope a picture of tomorrow that would give all of us, you included, passion today. And we don't and we actually think nothing could be more important, especially after the year that we have had, to have a compelling picture of the future that produces passion today. Some of you might be thinking, wait, I thought hope has a vision, Matthew's house. And you would be absolutely right. This is true. For those of you who are new, uh, Matthew's house. Matthew's house refers to the tax collector. Well, the former tax collector, Matthew, turned disciple who we encounter in the Gospels. When Matthew experiences the welcome of Jesus, the first thing he does recorded for us in the Gospels is make a meal and invite Jesus and all of his friends to his house. That is utterly compelling to us as a church. And I want you to know, we are not scrapping Matthew's house. We always want to be a church that looks and feels like Matthew's house the day after he encountered the welcome of Jesus. But over the past few years, we have noticed something about Matthew's house. Matthew's house isn't really a vision. It's certainly a compelling picture. It's certainly a biblical picture, but it isn't a picture of tomorrow. And so we're not scrapping Matthew's house, but we decided to make Matthew's house more concrete, more unique to our church, and more future-focused. And to do this, we're starting 10 years out and working our way back to the present. This has been called future present thinking. So present future thinking is how we're used to thinking. It's when you start with what you know today and you build out. And that's important. But future present thinking is when you start in the future and you walk your way back. Again, both are important, but only one creates vision. And so we want to invite you to hope 2031. If you could travel in time, and if you could try the best you can with the knowledge you have, imagining this city of Columbus, which you love, the campus of Ohio State, which you love, this church, Hope Presbyterian, which you love, and you're able to spend a good week meeting with the people of Hope 2031. You're able to attend the worship service. You're able to uh, see the life of the church as it works itself out throughout the week in so many other ways beside the worship service. 
and you write down notes, what strikes you about this community, and you bring these notes back to your 2021 self. What did you see? What caught your attention? What is Hope 2031 up to? How is God uniquely shaping this church? Now, full disclosure, as if I didn't need to say this, we cannot, the leadership of hope cannot see the future. We simply cannot. And so what we are going to do is we're going to do the best we can prayerfully, led by the Spirit, but also we're going to adjust and adapt as we go. But we do think you would see several key things characterizing the future of our church. And we're going to be spending the next two to three months unpacking these key distinctives of Hope 2031. Not just in our preaching, but in other various resources, as we already have been as well. In no order of importance, and that's important, in no order of importance, I will be walking through about seven key distinctives about our future. Starting this morning with the centrality of vocation. Not vacation, vocation. What is vocation and why is it so important, so important to us that we see it as a central part of our 10-year vision? Let's first pray and then we'll find out. Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts as we encounter your word this morning, the full scope of your word. Holy Spirit, would you empower this time with your presence? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our dog Dewey is almost five months old today, which means we've been training Dewey for about three months. And like most things in my life that are new to me, I'm all in. This shouldn't surprise you if you know me at all. I've enrolled in online classes. We've been to some in-person classes. I've watched YouTube videos. I've read a couple books. Uh, But despite all of his training, he still struggles to answer my call. (laughs) That's so humbling. Treats help a ton. Treats help a ton. And by the way, if you have a puppy, like real meat, (laughs) like chicken and, and beef. But if you have ever trained a puppy, you understand the struggle. Can I get an amen? It is hard to get a puppy to hear your call. One of the problems in my own house is that we have so many voices, so many voices in our home going on at the same time. So one of my training books uh, said to make sure that you train your dog without any other voices around you so the dog doesn't get confused and so that the puppy will attach to your voice. And I'm just kind of laughing as I'm as I'm reading that. That's impossible in our home. There are too many voices going on. And all this makes me think of Jesus who says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now, I think about my discipleship with Jesus way too much as I'm training my dog. But I will say this. uh, Jesus compares me and all of you to sheep. So I think I'm okay. I'm not far off at least. Because in the world of shepherding, sheep eventually attach to their shepherd's call. They listen to one and only one voice, the voice of their shepherd. And this is essentially what it means to be a Christian. We have Jesus as our shepherd by grace. 
We were lost, wandering by ourselves, in danger, even as Paul would put it, dead. And yet Jesus, the true shepherd, gathers us in, gives us new life, and he becomes our committed shepherd. That's what it means to be a Christian. We have Jesus as our shepherd. We are in his flock by grace. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not some mark of pride. We're sheep. Uh, We're sheep in a flock, but we have Jesus as our shepherd. And by the same grace of God, we grow to discern and to even love his voice. But this is really hard to do when we have so many other voices who are out there calling our name. One of my favorite records, actually, I have it right here. I'll pull it out. One of my favorite records is Slow Train Coming by Bob Dylan. This is the first actual record in his so-called Christian trilogy uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. And uh, the very first song on this album is called Gotta Serve Somebody. And it's this brilliant even biblical observation that we got to serve somebody. There is no neutral ground in life. And this can be easily translated to, you've got to listen to somebody. The question isn't, are you listening to some call in your life and responding with all of who you are to that call? That's not the question. The question is, what call are you listening to and responding with all of your life. When you make decisions, major decisions, what call are you listening to? The decisions you're making in life, the whole, the very thing you think of when you wake up in the morning, what call are you listening to? Not, are you listening to a call? You gotta listen to somebody. Whose voice are you listening to? Maybe it's a voice from the past. Uh, Sometimes therapists talk about a childhood vow that we make. Um, something happened in your life way back when you were a child, something good, something bad. Regardless, we've made vows. We've said, I will always from here on out fill in the blank, or I will never from here on out fill in the blank. And what are we doing when we make these vows? We are responding to a call that's anchored way back into our childhood. So many of our decisions are made because we are answering a call from our past. Maybe it's a voice in the present. You're obeying a call in your life uh, from a boss or from a friend or for some pressure that you experience. All your decisions in life feel like they're being filtered through these voices that are sitting right here on your shoulder. The point is, all of life's major decisions are in obedience to somebody's call. Which brings us to the word vocation. Vocation. Vocation comes from the Latin word vocare. Vocare means call. It simply means call. So when you hear this word vocation, it's basically a fancy word for call. And every single human has a vocare, has a call, has a vocation. Because every single human is answering a call. At hope... We just want to make sure the call that you're answering is God's call. Amen? We just want to make sure that you are hearing the shepherd's voice in your call. And we want to help you discern that call. That's very much at the center of who we see ourselves in 10 years 
as a church. And that's what we talk about and what we are going to talk about when we say and talk about the word vocation. We want every single person joining us, whether they're a member or just exploring what it is to be a member, to be able to draw a clear line from their daily activity and their daily decisions, drawing a clear line from these things to the very voice of God. As a church, we want to actively equip folks to see all of their life in response to God's call, vocare, vocation. We imagine the high school student and the campus pastor seeing their daily work as equally sacred. We imagine the real estate appraiser, the unpaid parent, the professor, the doctor, the teacher, all seeing their handiwork as profoundly sacred. Why? Because they are connecting their daily work to God's call. The intersection of faith and of our work, or simply put, vocation, is going to play a major role in our future as a church. And so we need to understand it biblically. And what we're going to do to do that is start in in the book of Genesis, and we're going to end in the book of Revelation, which means vocation is a thread that runs from the very beginning to the very end of Scripture. So let's look, starting in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. The first thing we need to know about vocation is that from the beginning, God is a God who calls. God is a vocation God. He is a vocare God. He is a God who calls. If you look at Genesis 1, you will see that God reveals himself as uh, at least two things, creator and caller. God is a creator. Just look at Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay. God creates. The heavens and the earth here in verse one is just a handy way of saying everything. God created everything out of nothing. Ex nihilo which uh, is more than just a cool band name for a metal band. Ex nihilo means from nothing. It means that there was a time when only the triune God existed. And then out of sheer overflowing abundant joy, God sang everything into existence. Theologians call this first creation. Next in Genesis 1 comes what theologians call second creation. First creation was complete but uncultivated. It was a bit chaotic, we'll say. And so what follows next is cultivation from God himself. This is when God cultivates his creation with artful separation and artful filling. And so he separates light from dark, waters above from waters below, land from water, artful separating. And then he cultivates by filling, artful filling, sun, moon, and stars in the heavens, bird and fish for the sky and for the waters. And then for the land that he separated, animals 
And here we come, humanity. Creatures of the sixth day. That's when we get to what theologians call third creation. Look at Genesis 1, verse 27. God says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, a word about this word dominion, whatever that word means, it has to be connected to how the Lord governs. It has to be connected to how the Lord governs. So it's not abuse of God's creation. It's the loving stewardship of his creation. In fact, in this passage, God actually tells humanity to continue with the creation project that God has started. We're not doing creation ex nihilo. We're not obviously making things out of nothing, but we are taking God's creation and we are unfurling it and unfurling its potential that God made into it, cultivating it to God's glory. Or as G.K. Bill puts it, our task is to expand the borders of Eden to cover the entire earth. This is the call of God or the vocation over every human made in God's image. Creation is not, in other words, a finished product, but a project God created a project, and then he gives us the unbelievable dignity to continue that project. That's what, in part, it means to be created in God's image. The theologian N.T. Wright compares this image of God language to an angled mirror. I love this image, and I'm going to be talking about it a lot this morning. An angled mirror. We hear the image of God, and we think maybe we just... Image God right back to him, like a mirror that's facing up. But no, no, the image is more of an angled mirror. And an angled mirror does two things. I'll I'll quote him. God makes the earth a temple, and then he places an image into that temple. That's what we see in Genesis 1. The image is not a mirror in which God is reflected back to God. No, the image is an angled mirror. The the worship from, from Humanity and creation is reflected to God that way. And the stewardship and love and purposes of God are reflected out into the world. Isn't that an amazing picture? Our vocation is an angled mirror. We expand the borders of Eden as angled mirrors, reflecting our vocation to God and reflecting something of God's character and beauty to the world. So the next time you do homework, the next time you create art, the next time you write an essay, the next time you wake up in the middle of the night to change a diaper, the next time you log into Zoom for a work meeting, I want you to imagine yourself as an angled mirror. And ask yourself, how can I reflect something of God's character into this project, 
into this meeting, into this very mundane thing that I'm called to right now. And then ask, how can I take what I'm doing and present it to God? We are angled mirrors extending the borders of Eden. That's our vocation from the beginning. From the beginning. And that's Genesis 1 and 2. But, okay, this is important too. Genesis 3 tells us something very important about our vocation as well. It says that we will, by nature, reject this call. With our parents in the Garden of Eden, we now listen to other voices. We distrust God's voice and we turn away from his call. So just look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. In it, the serpent says, did God actually say? Right there, all sin begins right here. We doubt God's voice. And we start listening to other voices. Did God actually say? And all that is terrible about life, the source of all of our tears, all of our mental anguish comes from this rejection. It's what we call the fall. The fall. This is why we have physical death. This is why we have spiritual death. This is why we have divine alienation. This is why we have interpersonal alienation. This is why we feel guilt. This is why we need forgiveness and redemption. The fall. But one impact is worth highlighting this morning. Look at verse 17. One impact of the fall is this. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. Our vocation to expand the borders of Eden just got difficult. A couple summers ago, my family went to Sleeping Bear Dunes in Michigan. These giant sand dunes accumulate on the shore uh, next to the lake shore. And so what you do is you park your car and then these Dunes are calling your name. They just invite you to take off your shoes and to run. But about halfway up the dune, you're ready to give up because for every step that you make up, you literally slide back three steps. It's not one step forward, two steps back with these dunes. No, they're so high and angled up and they're just full of sand that with every single step forward, you make and slide back about three steps. That's our vocation in this fallen world, east of Eden. We were called to expand the borders of Eden as angled mirrors, but now it just feels like thorns and thistles are combating us at every single moment. This is why your job, this is why your paid job or unpaid job, whatever it is you're doing in your life, this is why this can be an arena of great stress for you. It's why it's hard to show up to yet another Zoom. It's why we get laid off. It's why we hate our boss sometimes. It's why brilliant humans use their brilliance for selfish financial gain at times. It's why corporations have this amazing capacity to heal the environment and also an amazing capacity to harm the 
environment. It's why corporations have this amazing capacity to heal their employees and to be a place of flourishing for their employees. It's also why corporations have this amazing capacity to harm their employees and to be an ecosystem of harm for their employees. It's why uh, the same goes for customers. Corporations can, can heal and harm their customers. Why? Because we live in a fallen world and because there are thorns and thistles. And it's because this original call to be angled mirrors, reflecting something of God's character to the world and reflecting our work back up to God has been shattered in a way. That mirror has been shattered in a way. Not erased, but a little bit shattered, right? That's what it means to live in this fallen world and to have a vocation. One step forward, three steps back. But in walks Jesus. Okay? In walks Jesus. Jesus comes to restore all that is broken. His life, his death, his resurrection is not just for the so-called afterlife, what happens after we die, but every bit as much about the now life. Jesus restores our vocation. And for this, I want you to turn to the Gospel of John. I want you to turn to the Gospel of John, in particular, John 19, verse 41. John 19, 41. This is one of my favorite details in the Bible. It says in verse 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so on Good Friday, Jesus, like a seed, is buried in a garden. But a few verses later on Sunday, we all know Jesus bursts out of the ground, alive. Resurrection. Mary Magdalene doesn't know this yet, and so she goes to the garden to grieve. And we see that in verse 11 of chapter 20. But as she goes to grieve, she notices that the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. So she assumes that Jesus is stolen. By grave robbers, which compounds her grief, no doubt. But look what happens in chapter 20, verse 15. The resurrected Lord of all, Jesus himself, says to Mary, Why are you weeping? And catch this, whom are you seeking? And then it says, John says in his gospel, Supposing Jesus to be the gardener, she said to him. I want you to notice that. Mary thought the resurrected Jesus was the gardener of the garden. I want you to let that small, seemingly insignificant detail just sink in, in particular with what we have been talking about, with the original task of humanity to expand the garden to cover the whole world, to be, ref- to be angled mirrors, reflecting God and reflecting our work back to God. Expanding that garden. And here Jesus is mistaken as a gardener. It's amazing. Over the centuries, there have been many paintings 
depicting Jesus, depicting this scene. And in the scene, you see Mary Magdalene, of course, but you see the resurrected Jesus holding a shovel. I want you to do this. If you, if you want, you can look and you'll see collections of art where this is true, where they point this out. Artists read this text and they see this detail and they give Jesus a shovel. And so now if you're ever in an art museum and you see Jesus holding a shovel with Mary Magdalene, you know why. Okay, it's John chapter 20. Mary thought Jesus was the gardener. And if you've been tracking with us this morning, you now understand that in a way, Mary was right. Jesus is the gardener. He is fulfilling our original vocation in every place that we fail. In fact, the Apostle Paul uh, says in his letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 15, he compares Jesus and he's to Adam, and he says that Jesus is the second Adam. Adam, the gardener, Adam, the original gardener, whose task was to reflect God into the world, reflect his work back to God, expand the borders of Eden. That gardener failed, and he went rogue, and so do all of we, all of us. And so the project in Jesus to expand the borders of Eden is back on. Jesus is the gardener. He is the resurrected one who fulfills the vocation that we fail to. This is surely why Paul can tell the Thessalonian church, quote, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands. Just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. The apostle says, work with your hands. Surely that is because Jesus is alive. He is the gardener. So everything we do, all of our handwork is sacred. I know there's some succulent fans out there. Uh, because you've gifted your succulents to us. And I'm fascinated by these little plants uh, because uh, they thrive in terrible conditions. Now, uh, when everything else is dying around them, they seem to be just fine. Why? Well, you, those of you who have them know, they store water. They take their nourishment down deep and they keep it down deep. And this is, for me, a great picture of what it means to have our call, our vocation, restored in Jesus. It doesn't mean our circumstances are easy or our job is easy or the things we're called to in our job are easy or the fact that we're struggling even to find a job that satisfies. It doesn't mean any of that struggle goes away, but it does mean because Jesus is alive, the true and perfect gardener, and we are connected to him. It does mean we have nourishment. It does mean that we can keep on working and praying. We can connect our daily lives to Jesus even when it's a struggle bus. It also means that everything we do matters eternally. And Jesus gives us this eternal perspective about our daily tasks that I want to end with this morning. Listen to Revelation 21. This is the first verse if you want to turn there. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven 
from God. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place, thank Eden, is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thorns and thistles, friends. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Just like Eden, the new heavens and the new earth is like a garden. But unlike Eden, it is expanded to encompass the entire earth. And just like Eden, God is walking among his people. But unlike Eden, there are a lot more people than the Garden of Eden. This is a garden city. And the Bible, it's been said, is, is, is a story that starts in a garden, ends with a garden city. And it has people from all the world, the whole world. And so our task Our original task given by God in Genesis 1, the very first page of the Bible, to expand the borders of Eden to all of the world will one day be realized. And that's what I want to end with. This picture that is true. This is a signpost of where we are heading, which gives unbelievable dignity to what you are up to today, to what you are up to tomorrow, to what you are up to, what you are studying to be up to, what you are doing, what you are considering doing. Whether you're a professional or an amateur or a volunteer, whatever it is you're doing, It means everything we do has the potential to reverberate into eternity. It's what Andy Crouch calls furnishing the new creation. Write that phrase down. Furnishing the new creation. When we connect all of our life to God's call, we are in a sense furnishing that final day when God makes all things new. And restores even the very things we do today. Antonio Stradivari, he made just about a thousand instruments in his lifetime. And many of them are still being played today. And many of them are considered to be the best instruments of their kind. But here's the thing. Stradivari made these instruments in the 18th century. We have 244 of his violins, we have 13 of his violas, 63 of his cellos, 5 of his guitars, would like to play that, 1 of his harps, 2 of his mandolins. You could start a bluegrass band. Yitzhak Perlman, Joshua Bell, and Yo-Yo Ma all play his instruments today. We're talking 18th century instruments playing today, reverberating into the now. When you connect your daily life to God's call, it's as if you are crafting Stradivarius instruments, artifacts that last. Even the most mundane action, like changing a diaper out of faithfulness or grading a paper with care. When you do these things as an angled mirror, reflecting God to that task, something about his character, his beauty, his integrity, his truthfulness, his gospel. You are reflecting something back to him in worship. 
And that is the gift of every Christian. What you do matters. You have God's call on your life. So let me just ask you a few questions as we close. How are you spending your days? Annie Dillard, the writer, she once wrote, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. Examine your days. Everybody works. You're working. Some of it's paid. A lot of it is unpaid. I would say most of it is unpaid. But take stock in what you're doing and what you're up to. Now, ask yourself, How can I connect this inventory, what you're up to, with God's call in my life to expand the Garden of Eden to the whole world? Like an angled mirror, how can I uniquely reflect God into these things? And how can I uniquely bring these things to God as my worship? And I'm not just talking about ministry things. I'm talking about everything that is possible for you guys to be up to. You can take those things as an act of worship. It will surely change the way you do some of your work. And then we're going to talk about that um, next week. We're going to be talking about that in the coming years. And we as a church hope to help equip you to think through these things. Maybe you're in a job transition right now. Or have regrets about your job. Or retiring from your job. I think this would be a safe time to bring these questions about vocation to God and to explore them, what it would look like to connect God to your moment. Have you ever thought about God and your job? Has that ever crossed your mind? Uh, As a church, we want to help you think about that question more and more and more. And that's what it means for us to have vocation at the center of our 10-year vision. Uh, We're partners with something called the Thompson Institute at Ohio State University. Look that up. Google it. I'll even say Google it now. I'm almost done with the sermon anyway. Just Google it now. Look up the Thompson Institute at Ohio State. This exists uh, to help students connect God to their studies, which, of course, connects their vocation to God. Uh, But we want to expand this, though, more and more to our church. We want to see vocation mentorships in our church. If you're, for instance, if you're in medical school, uh, we want uh, to provide mentors for you that can help you connect God to what it is that you're up to. And this applies to everything. In March, we have an opportunity to read this book together called Every Good Endeavor. We'll connect over Zoom on a Sunday night or a, or a weekday night. We haven't yet come to the exact date for this uh, to talk more and more about this just this March. So Mark your calendar and expect that coming up. See, according to scripture, our faith and our work are married. Um, To use an analogy, our faith and our work are like sodium and chloride. Sodium is poisonous by itself. Chlorine is poisonous by itself. But when combined and when in relationship to each other, they bring salt. They create salt. And as we know from a few weeks ago, salt can be a profound blessing, which creates growth, which preserves, which makes things better. Faith and work are meant to be together. That's how God designed us to expand the borders of Eden with all of our life. We want to be a church that keeps these things together. Let's pray now.
that that be true. Lord, would you indeed enable us to be a church that cares profoundly about the day-in, day-out work of our people. Helping us to see that all that we do can be an act of worship to you. And all that we do can be transformed by you in our relationship to you. Show us the path forward in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.